Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open up to Colossians chapter 2. It's also going to be projected up behind me, and there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't own, um, we use the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's a um, reliable translation. Uh, If you don't own a copy of that, please take one home with you so that you could follow along with the text that we use when we preach here on Sunday mornings. So we are continuing our study through verse by verse through the book of Colossians. Um, We're doing a little mini-series within a series called Alive in Christ that began last week on Easter. How good was that Easter service? Man, are you guys still filled up from that? Man, I've just, I have been so filled up. I've had a family that, uh, I know many of your families have had the, whatever this bubonic plague thing is that's been going around And it still hasn't been able to knock the joy off of our face. It's just, it was just such a precious time. So thank you. It was an honor to be able to worship with such a precious group of believers. Uh, I love you guys from the bottom of my heart. And um, (laughs) you make me cry. Um, (laughs) I've been doing this, this is is my my 15th year um, in the pastorate. Last Sunday was probably the most special time I've ever been a part of in ministry, and um, I'm full, so um, anyway, if if you've ever been a parent, I know that that doesn't apply to everybody here, and I'm not trying to leave out any singles, but the the illustration that I'm going to use, I think it works best from the angle of parenting, there's two words that I think every one of you have uttered at least one time in disbelief, probably on your way to church this morning. Come on, guys. <laughs> you ever read of that one? Like, just shaking. Come on, really? Seriously? There's a time for getting down on a kid's level when they're just not getting it. And to be able to look them in the eye, face to face, be able to connect with them, be able to show them the error of their ways in a gentle and gracious teaching manner. <coughs> There's also the times where you're at the end of your rope and you don't feel like getting down on their level and you just say, well, the answer is because I said so. Um, and then there's the times when you're like, really? We've gone over this a thousand times. Like you just finished being grounded like 13 times in a row for this. And you're doing the same. That, that was me growing up, by the way. Like I, I'd get grounded for something. I'd get off of grounding and literally do the same thing as I was walking out of my room from being grounded for a couple weeks. And those are the times when the parent just shakes their head and says, really, you should know by now. Come on, guys. And that's how Paul's starting off his passage as we go to Colossians this morning. In last week's passage, he was telling them just how free they are in Christ, the chains are gone, my heart is free, I rose and went forth and followed thee, right? That's, that's right from the passage we looked at last week in Easter. And he explained to them the great price that was paid to secure their freedom. And that there was no possibility of any charges ever again, ever being brought against them. Because every charge that ever existed was nailed to the tree and put to open shame When Jesus Christ was crucified, the charges were gone. So there's no longer any need to live in bondage 
Because all the things that brought us bondage, all the things that brought us slavery are gone once and forever. Yet here these guys are in the next paragraph returning to the bondage of the things that they were just freed from, from Jesus. And Paul is like, come on, man. Why has it got to be like that? I heard this story years ago, and I, I can't vouch for the exact details because I looked it up on the Internet and found, like, four different variations, which means that it's probably just something a preacher made up somewhere. Um, but doesn't that drive you nuts when preachers make up stories? I guess it's not any better if I'm quoting a made-up story, so I, <laughs> who am I to judge? But it, it went something like this. Uh, there was a tiger that had been in a zoo, and it had been so used to being caged in this 20 by 20 cage. And I can't remember whether it either escaped or whether it was set free into the wilderness. Um, the stories vary. But because it had been so used to being caged, it didn't realize that the whole world was now his playground. So they saw the tiger just walking around in a 20 by 20 square because it didn't realize the cage was gone and it was now free. Um, how many of you have ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Um, uh, most of you. Remember, probably my favorite character in the movie, but probably the most tragic character, a guy named Brooks. You guys remember, you remember Brooks? Um, he had a similar story to the tiger that I just told. He had been so used to the life in prison that he did not know how to adjust to freedom when he finally got out. For him, the lack of freedom was the freedom that he had become comfortable with. And he had grown accustomed to. And he didn't know how to handle his newfound freedom. And it ended tragically. I was listening to, you want another gospel illustration of the same thing? I was listening to the great theologian Don Henley from the Eagles. And I was stunned by a particular line from the song, Already Gone. I'm not going to sing it for you because I'm merciful. Um, but... Think of this line. If this doesn't stop you in your tracks and you can't see the gospel just replete in this, I, I don't know what to tell you. He said, I can't believe he didn't see the gospel in what he was saying, as a matter of fact. He says, so oftentimes it happens that we live our lives in chains and we never even knew we had the key. Man, how could you be so close but miss it? It reminded me of the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus. Like you're that close that you missed it by that much. And that's what Paul's getting to here. He's saying, look, you've lived your whole life in chains. Christ bore those chains on the cross on your behalf. You no longer have to live a life in chains anymore. And don't you know that you've had the key the whole time? And if you have the key, why are you standing there with the key on and putting the chains back on yourself. So let me just clue you into the main thought of our text before we get into it. Last week we looked at being loved by Jesus and being lovers of Jesus. This week we are going to look at the fact that being a good rule keeper is not the same thing as being madly in love with Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, our young people, I want to speak to you soberly. Our young people need to hear this message preached, not just from pulpits, 
but in the way you discipline your children, in the way that you interact with the young people in our church, in the way that you get down on their level, because this right here is the reason that we're turning into Europe and young people are leaving the churches in droves. It's not because our Jesus ain't cool enough or that we don't have hipster Jesus and fog machines. It's because they are sick of this narrative. Being good rule keepers does not equate to being a lover of Jesus. They could see through the hypocrisy. They could see through when we say that Christianity is all about grace. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. But then you pull the bait and switch and nail them to the wall when they break the rules. You don't think that sends an inconsistent message to children? You don't think that they can see through that? I wish that I could take you with me in the circles that I go and evangelize in. And maybe, maybe I should. Maybe that would be good training for both of us. But I wish that you could see just how much people see the inconsistency and how little they're interested in hearing a message about how we're free from bondage because of Jesus, only to have a worse bondage awaiting them in the form of man-made religion. It's like the parable that Jesus told. He said, there's this man who came and swept out the demon, but we didn't fill it with anything new. We didn't fill it with spirit. We didn't fill it with relationship with Jesus. So he came back and brought seven worse, even uglier than the first one. That's what you offer people when you offer them rule-keeping religion. And brothers and sisters, we have to get this right. And I hope this passage helps. So Jesus, I pray that you would use this passage to just speak truth into our hearts and grace. And Lord, that we would be missionaries to the Jersey Shore, full of grace, full of truth, full of the light of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. So as we look at verse 16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And the therefore in verse 16 here is vitally important. It connects it back to verse 15. As you guys have heard, it's a colloquialism. Anytime you hear that little word therefore pop up, you're supposed to ask what it's there for, and it's always a connection point to the new thought that it's about to be conveyed, connecting it to the previous thought that was just laid out. And usually it's where the application of the previous thought comes in. Usually it's, here's the truth, so therefore, how now shall we live in light of this truth? It's like God wants you to know this important piece of truth, so therefore, now let your life be changed by the truth that was just laid out. So as we go back to the previous passage in verse 15, it was all about the reality that God is not judging you. Check this out. If you're in Christ, God is, your God is not your judge. He's your advocate. He's not your judge. He's your savior. He's not your judge. He's your friend. He's not your judge. He's your father. He is the lover and keeper of your souls. And the good news is God, if you are in Christ, is no longer your judge. 
How beautiful is that? In fact, he took every piece of that judgment, put it on himself on the cross in what we celebrated last week, and it said that he took all of those things that you should be judged for, and he put them to open shame. All those things that you should be shamed for, he shamed them and said, judge them no more. I've paid for that. They're mine. So the point that Paul is raising is, if God is not judging you, who the heck are you to go and judge one another? For some reason, Paul thought that judgmentalism just might creep into the church. I know that's crazy, right? I know that you're going to have to use your imaginations on this one. It's a stretch. I don't know why. I've never met a judgmental Christian before. But even though I can never fathom such a thing as a judgmental Christian, for some reason Paul thought that it might turn into an issue. Hence, let no one go on passing judgment on you. Anyone ever been in a situation where you felt judged by other Christians? If you haven't, I just want to encourage you, come stand up in a pulpit sometime. It's fun to look out and see all the multivaried looks on some of your faces. Like, some of you are like, yes, I'm feeling that. And some of you are like, are you going to kill me in the parking lot? But um, it stinks to feel judged, doesn't it? So this is good news. What he's saying when he's saying you don't have to go and be judged, he's saying, hey, man, let your freak flag fly. That's cool. It's all right, man. The Christian life is so much bigger than what other people think about you. Hear that. The Christian life is so much bigger than what other people think about you. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 4.3. He says, to me, it is a very small thing if I'm judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even waste time judging myself. How cool is that? That's his way of saying, what you think about me, it's not nothing. It certainly ain't everything, though. <laughs> it's maybe that important. I guarantee you that there are some people here right now whose entire lives would be changed if they could grasp this concept and stop living on the treadmill of caring and living your life about the people that are judging you. Why do you want to impress them anyway? Do you even like them? I don't care for people that judge me, so why would I want to spend my life trying to impress people that are just going to end up judging me when I try to impress them? Imagine being able to just release the notion of caring about what other people think about you. For those of you who allow yourself to be controlled by other people's thoughts and judgments, could you imagine the weight that would come off of your shoulders if you were able to just release that? Like, seriously, use your imagination for a second. If that's you, I know that there's people that feel that way. At, at some point, we all feel that way. Imagine if you could just release that. How liberating would it be? Well, that's the good news that Paul is sharing here in verse 16. He's saying you don't have to live in fear of judgment by God, by religious people, or by any other human court. And the judgment that's spoken of here is a particular kind of judgment it's talking about judgment for not being good enough rule keepers and not living up to your standards. Let me repeat that. We're not talking about God's word here. We're talking about not living up to your standards. 
We're not talking about God's standards, which we saw were already satisfied completely by Jesus in the previous passage we looked at last week. Look at the standards that we're talking about. He's saying, don't let anybody pass judgment on you on things about food or drink or regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Like, I personally think people that eat kale are nuts. But I have no reason to judge you. If you want to eat cow food, go for it, man. That's your thing. You do your thing, man. I have no right to judge you for what it is that you're eating. And really, his point here is twofold. If you're judging people because they're not living up to your standards, knock it off. Get it? Stop. I know it's happening. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have inspired Paul to write it if it wasn't happening. And don't let anybody else judge you for not keeping their stupid religion. So I'll hit the first one, and I'm going to hit it hard. If you're judging other people because they are not living up to your standards, knock it off because you are steeped in sin. You got it? That thing that even though you think that you're the moral police, your judgmentalism drove Jesus to the cross. I hope you understand that. If you go around judging others on the regular, let me ask you a simple question. Who do you think you are? Honestly, who do you think you are? Do you think others want to be judged by you? Do you think people walk into church and they're like, you know what? That, that dude, he's a guru. And I hope that he just comes and just lashes out at me and tells me just how much I don't measure up to his standards. No. Nobody is looking for that. The reason they went to a savior is because they want to be free from that. Judgmental Christians are a bigger cause of atheism than secular humanism. You hear me on that? Judgmental Christians are a bigger cause for atheism than secular humanism. If you're judging people because they don't mean your standard, then it means two things. It means you don't think that they deserve grace, and it means that you don't think that you're in need of grace. If you constantly find yourself disappointed with people because they're not meeting your standards, you might want to take a major look at that. As a matter of fact, I would suggest you don't take communion today, and you have a time of just reflective repentance before you do, and then go and take after giving that over to the Lord. We're not talking about graciously calling people out on sin here, right? That's, that's just biblical Christianity. We're supposed to walk in holiness and call people out on sin. We're talking about judging people because they have not risen to the standard of your sensibilities. So the next time you feel that judgmental spirit starting to rise up, take a look in the mirror and ask yourself, who am I? Who do I think I am? When I know that I couldn't measure up, and that's why I needed a savior, yet for some reason I feel like I should have the right to make other people feel like they don't measure up. If you're in that rut, I want to encourage you. Ask your heart, even now. I'm a believer that 
You don't have to take sermon notes and go and reflect on this during the week to go and change. That the Holy Spirit is big enough that if this is talking to you, you can change right now. And if that's you, take a look in your heart and say, why is grace just shriveled up in my life? And why have I turned into a graceless person? Most people who refuse to give grace refuse to see their need for grace as well. And the second, do not let people judge you or make you feel like you're in some way less because you refuse to keep the rules of their stupid man-made religion. You know how you can tell if someone is judging you for not living up to their stupid religious standards? They're constantly resistant to change, meaning like any idea that you bring up, it couldn't possibly be a good idea because back in some Baptist church in 1920, we used to do it like this. Or they constantly push against any new idea you have because obviously nothing new could possibly be good. Even though Jesus, his own words, he said, shall, what, what shall I compare the wise man? He is like the man who brings out of his treasure both things old and things new. Or there are people that regularly use the words, well, we've always done it this way. Or that's not the way that we've done it in the past. Guess what? Nobody cares. You're not doing anything to move the kingdom forward if that's the way that you process everything. You know what? If you want to get stuck in some sort of religious glory days in the past, be my guest, but don't you dare judge me for not playing your stupid game. That's what the text is getting at. And you want to hear something cool? Paul's giving you permission. He's saying, follow Christ. You don't have to play by their rules. Your responsibility as a Christian is to yield to Scripture and to the Holy Spirit, not to other people's preferences. Paul is trying to give them a message of freedom that you don't have to waste your life playing church and setting up sacred cows. That's why Paul picks the things that he did in verse 16. These were the sacred cows of the day. And much like Jesus, Paul loved killing sacred cows. Paul was the ultimate cow tipper. So before we move on, let me ask you, do you have some sacred cows that need to be killed this morning? If you're holding a grudge over something that has more to do with someone disrupting the comfortability of the way that you've been doing things than an actual sin, that is evidence that you have a sacred cow. And I'm just going to tell you, brothers and sisters, I see it all the time. This should be speaking to people's hearts. I'm not going to use a bully pulpit. I'm not, going, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but I see it all the time, and this should be speaking to people's hearts. If you hold a grudge that somebody is disrupting your comfortable way of doing Christianity and it's not over an actual sin issue, you have sacred cow issues that need to be dealt with. And if it sounds like I'm being strong, it's because I am. Because in their judgment, they turn Christianity into this graceless religion devoid of gospel that doesn't resemble the gracious, scandalous relationship with Jesus that's spoken of in the Bible. And that's a big deal. If we could reach God through man-made religion, then the Son of God came here and died in vain. So look at what Paul warns us about in verses 17 and 18. He says that these things are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting of asceticism and worship of angels and going on in details about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. He warns them not to judge people based on the things like what they're eating or drinking or observance of religious festivals or how they keep the Sabbath. If you read through the Gospels, this was one of the biggest, if not the biggest problems that Jesus encountered with the Pharisees on a regular basis. They did not like the fact that he ate and drank with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. They didn't like the fact that Jesus' Sabbath worship looked different than what they thought Sabbath worship was supposed to look like, which is hilarious since Jesus is the one who created the Sabbath to begin with. And they judged him for it. Remember when he healed the paralytic man and instead of rejoicing, they sat around grumbling? Remember when he healed the man on the Sabbath and instead of rejoicing, they sat around grumbling because he broke their religious Sabbath rules? Remember when he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and they called him a drunkard and a glutton? Oh, that Redeemer Fellowship might be known as the church full of drunkards and gluttons that hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Dear Jesus, may that be our reputation. Do these things still happen today? You betcha. I, I mean, do not let people judge you with regard to religious festivals. You know what? It never fails. Every year since I've been a pastor, I wish people a happy Easter. And then they just let the air out of my balloon and say, don't you mean happy resurrection day? Don't you know that Easter is named after the Babylonian god Ishtar and that it was actually an ancient pagan fertility cult? One of these days I'm finally just going to step up and tell somebody how crazy mouth their words really sound like and say, you know what? You figured it out. I'm a sham. Really what I am is a covert Ishtar missionary <laughs> who's come here to undermine the gospel and try to get as many people back into a 4,000-year-old Babylonian worship system as possible because I have a real passion for fertility cults. <laughs> like, what do they think is really going on here? If we want to be realistic, the wrong word in the sentence to that person wasn't Easter. The wrong word was happy. I better stop because I mean... <laughs> There's a lot of people out there that would rather be right and religious than have a relationship. But good luck with that, because my Bible says knock that garbage off. I also find it hilarious when it says don't let anyone judge you with regards to eat or drink, when that's one of the most common things that people judge Christians over. Entire denominations have split over things like what does the word wine in the New Testament mean? Did it really have, it was non-alcoholic wine, obviously. Sure, yeah, that's why Noah passed out drunk from drinking so much grape juice. He was just flat-backed. Give me a break. I remember early on planting the church, and me and Daniel were at a family birthday party that somebody from the church was throwing on, and, and, and they put some pictures up on Facebook. Not on the church Facebook, because otherwise I would have had an issue with this. This would have been a stumbling block. It was their own family's Facebook, their own private page. And apparently there were pictures of some bottles of beer laying around. 
So the person called me up very concerned that their pastors would be involved in pictures where there were beers on the table in the background. So I took them to Mark 2. I took them to John 12 and various other pictures and showed them that Jesus had more pictures of beer on his Facebook wall than there was on this Facebook wall. Newsflash, he didn't find the humor in what I was trying to say. Uh, religious people rarely ever do, but it's saying stop judging people over stupid things. Just go back and look at this passage. Look, don't judge me for having a beer, and I won't judge you if you believe that Christians should abstain. That's our liberty in Christ. We can both live together in harmony. And, and I can sit up here and just... <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just a bottle of water. I'm a, <laughs> I mean, sometimes a picture can tell a thousand words, right? And, and while we're at it, if we really want to take this passage seriously, stop judging people for how they vote. Stop judging people for how they dress. Stop judging people for whether they choose to homeschool or private school or public school. Uh, I mean, seriously. Is my message any better or worse? I, I'm not saying this message is a good one. But is it any better or worse when I was wearing that jacket than when I'm wearing my Grateful Dead tie-dyed t-shirt? If it is, that's your fault. That's not my fault. I'm actually way more comfortable, and I'm not fat and sweaty right now. So uh, I'm enjoying this. We would do well to practice five little words, and you can say them along with me if you want. It's none of my business. Can I hear you say it, just to humor me? It's none of my business. And look what he says. Man, I got, my socks don't match my outfit. Um, look what he says. Oh, man. That's going to go on Facebook, and now a religious person's going to leave the church. Um, so this is what he says. <laughs> He says about people that want to keep on spending all of their time judging. Let's look at the rest of the passage, and I'll wrap it up here in a couple of minutes because we have a baptism to celebrate. He says, when they're holding, and when, when no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about vision, puffed up without reason and a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He's talking about all of these religious things, and he's saying these are shadows. That this isn't Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is not what Jesus Christ died for. The shadow is not the same thing as the substance. The shadow is but a dim outline of the substance. The substance is Jesus Christ. Let me describe to you the difference between a substance and a shadow. When I'm standing in the sun, I cast a shadow. The shadow is just a dark spot on the ground, but the person who is casting the shadow is the actual substance. So the things 
that they're talking about here are shadows, but they're intended to point you to the substance, which Paul says is Christ. And the reason this is such a serious issue is because people can spend their entire Christian life giving so much attention to the shadows that they miss the actual substance. Let me just tell you, if, if Jesus wasn't real, if it turned out that we're just a bunch of knuckleheads, there is no Holy Spirit, there was no Savior, and if we could still do the same thing here week in and week out apart from any supernatural presence of God, then we're fooling ourselves. We're worshiping shadows. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about biblical faith. Why worship a shadow when you could worship the real thing? Like many people, my entire family is just laid up sick, and I've got a sick wife that's home with the kiddos. So imagine if I took this picture of my wife. I know she's watching at home, so wherever the camera is, I picked a good picture of you, baby. Um, so imagine I took this picture, and I was like, hey, sweetie, you want me to get you some Gatorade on the way home? Can I pick you up some medicine? Do you need anything? You'd look at me like I was crazy, right? You would say, that, that, that makes no sense. That's how much makes sense it makes for you to serve the shadow when you can be serving the substance that is Jesus. And that's Paul's point in Colossians 2. All of these things that have the appearance of religion are just pictures. Don't worship the pictures. Why worship the picture when you have direct access to the throne room of the substance himself? Do you understand that? Can you understand why a religion is so offensive to God? If all we needed was religion, then God is a cosmic child abuser for allowing his son to be crucified on our behalf. But he knew that religion could never do it. So in verse 19, he's pleading with him. He's saying, don't let somebody turn your Christianity into something that it's not. Don't let people turn it into the moral crusade. Don't let people turn it into a graceless religion. Forget that. Go to the source and the source is Jesus. Instead of turning your Christianity into something that it was never intended to be, hold fast to the head. And when you hold fast to the head, in verses 21 through 23, he explains that your growth is not something that you're doing yourself. You're not creating your own growth. The growth is coming from God himself because you're connected to the head who's, cre who's creating the growth. And this is something that we have to get across to our kids. This is this is really going to be my last point, but I, I, I'm passionate about this. They have to know that Christianity means something more than being a good rule keeper. If our kids see Christianity as just, well, I, these are, I can't do these things because I, I, I grew up in a Christian house. I'm not allowed to do that either. If that's all they see Christianity as, they will walk away. I promise you. They will walk away. They need to learn from an early age that it's about relationship. It's not. And keeping rules is good. I'm not preaching antinomianism here. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said if you've never been accused of preaching lawlessness, you've probably never preached the true gospel. If you knew that God was not impressed with your ability to keep his rules to save you, then why do you think that he would be impressed with your inability to keep your own rules to save you. That's the folly of legalism. There's only one rule keeper. 
that God has ever been impressed with. There are, there seems to be a sober reality. There are better rule keepers than you burning in hell as we speak. Wrap your mind around that. Because Jesus didn't come to create rule keepers. He came to create a family of worshipers. And this is the point of the sermon where I usually give you the application. So Jesus came to free you from religion. So why would you submit to religion? Verse 21, he says it so clearly. If Christ, with Christ you died to the elemental things of the world, why is it that you're still alive to this world? Why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, things that are going to perish? You're dead to those things. Christ freed you. Religion might have the appearance of wisdom, but according to verse 23, when the rubber meets the road, it doesn't have any power. It can't save you. It can't give you freedom. You know how many men I've sat with and have talked to about their lust issues that they think, uh, you know what, it's just, if I just don't go to the beach during the summer, or if I just don't watch these TV channels, or if I don't do this, and I don't, no, that's, verse 23 is saying man-made religion isn't going to do these things. You need to change this thing. You need to change the thing that's craving those lusts to begin with. You're never going to free yourself through man-made religion. Religion might have an appearance of wisdom, but it ain't going to save you, and it's not fun either. So don't go on judging people over religion. If you have, go seek that person out. Repent so that you might soften your religious heart. Don't submit to other people's religious judgments because Jesus loves you too much for you to have to. And the whole point of the passage as we close is don't get lost to dead churchianity. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Hold fast to the head. Cling to Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much that you are so good. Let us cling to you right now. And as we celebrate you through communion and baptism, the greatest pictorial illustrations we have of your gospel, let us rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray.